Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Welcome to episode two of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're squarely in the latter category. To paraphrase Brad Pitt from Moneyball, there are good books, there are bad books. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's the tin drum. Gunter Grass's 1959 debut. The Bildungsroman, the story of one person's education in the way of the world, is typically divided into three parts. Part one, character is born and exposed to immediate circumstances, home, family, etc., Part two, character enters the wider world, friends, school, church, madrasa, etc. Part three, character breaks from these formative surroundings and defines him or herself anew, in effect showing how that specific journey through life has made him or her into a particular kind of person. Described in this way, the Tindram is a typical Bildungsroman, the story of the protagonist's life and development, but at the same time it turns the form upside down. This is because the protagonist of the tin drum, Oscar, arrives in the world with the self-conscious, fully formed mind of an adult. To hear Oscar tell it, he is self-aware straight out of the chute, eyes wide open from moment one. This does not phase Oscar or surprise him. In fact, it's a bit of a running theme. The strange and improbable is strictly business for the little man. If he'd been given a slogan or some kind of tagline, it would have been, yeah, I could see that happening. The other aspect of Oscar's character that makes the tin drum run counter to the typical Bildungsroman, and the reason I refer to him just now as the little man, is that at the age of three, Oscar halts his physical development. He stops growing, and from that moment on, remains childlike in stature and appearance. And the fact that he keeps his adult thoughts and observations inside, at least for most of the book, reinforces this illusion. Oscar tells the reader that he does this of his own volition, and although he tells us in the first line of the book, Granted, I'm an inmate in a mental institution. The reader accepts this unlikelihood, the idea that Oscar has a fully formed mind inside a child's body, at face value. Part of accepting Oscar's claims is that we're reading a book full of these details. The other reason, and I will get into this in a little bit, is that if we begin to question aspects of Oscar's story, this questioning would never end, and a book that's held in place by the flimsiest of lineaments would fall apart altogether. I mean, the story does a good enough job of leading us nowhere without the reader putting extra effort into it. Like most things in this novel, in fact, like almost everything in this novel, Oscar's perma-child appearance is meant to be a symbol. But a symbol of what? Well, if you've read the press on Gunter Grass, or come to this book with any preconceived notions... The answer to this question is pretty obvious. Oscar is a symbol of his generation, those who were born too late to fully participate in the Second World War, at least until the very end, but whose development was stunted by the advent, prosecution, and consequences of that war. This idea that Oscar is a symbol of a generation is reinforced by the author, who has been called again and again, so it must be true, the conscience of Germany. 
So it's based on this that you can say, all right, Oscar is that symbol of his times, and also tough luck for Germany to have Gunter Grass's conscience. Yet the idea that Oscar is a symbol for his generation suffers a little when you take a closer look at the character himself. For starters, Oscar is from the city of Danzig, or Gdansk, which is not in Germany proper. It's in modern-day Poland, and was, at the time of the war's outbreak, a so-called free or international city. Oscar's own background is also outside the norm. His predominant heritage is Kashubian, Kashubia being the region around Danzig, which is an intermediate culture with its own dialect, a mixture of Polish and German. A further complication is the matter of Oscar's lineage. His mother, Agnes, is Kashubian all the way, born and raised in the hinterlands of Danzig slash Gdansk. Oscar's father, however, might be his mother's husband, the Ekt-Deutsch Alfred Mazarat, future member of the Nazi party. Or it might be Oscar's mother's lover, Jan Bronski, 100% Polish, who dies through no fault of his own, resisting the German invaders. Early on, Oscar decides it's the German Alfred that's his father, but he frequently and strongly considers the possibility it's a Polish Jan. As a rule, Oscar calls himself Oscar Mazarat, but will occasionally slip into the mellifluous Oscar Bronski. Like the city into which he's born, Oscar could be said to be on one side or the other, or both, so it's hard to say what he's representing so far, beyond being the voice of the free city of Danzig slash Gdansk. The fact that Oscar's a midget makes him exception rather than rule in yet another way. As a pint-sized tyke and a not particularly likable one, he is picked on by people his own age and doesn't make friends. Nor does Oscar go to school, at least not for more than one day. Indeed, he's taught to read and write by a friend of his parents, a childless housewife, who gives him a motley reading list from which Oscar chooses to focus exclusively on the works of Goethe and Rasputin. Incidentally, Rasputin, so far as I can tell, didn't write anything. But we'll just give that a pass, as we kind of have more important things to discuss. Without friends or traditional schooling and not raised in the church or, later on, drafted into the army, Oscar isn't socialized in any kind of typical way. Yet we are still attached to this idea that Oscar is a symbol. Yes, this is because of the reputation of the book and the author. But there's something else that suggests Oscar is a symbol, and that is the fact that there's nothing realistic or natural about the character. Oscar sums himself up at various points throughout the novel, and these synopses always run like this. What more can I say? Born beneath the light bulbs, interrupted my growth at the age of three, was given a drum, sang shattered glass, smelled vanilla, coughed in churches, stuffed Lucy with food, watched ants as they crawled, decided to grow, buried the drum, moved to the west, lost what was east, learned to carve stone, and posed as a model, went back to my drum and inspected concrete, made money and cared for the finger, gave the finger away and fled as I laughed, ascended, arrested, convicted, confined, now soon to be freed, and today is my birthday. I'm 30 years old and still as afraid of the black cook as ever. That gives a pretty good idea of what Oscar's about, as well as the experience of reading what Oscar's about, being bounced around from one portentous event to the next. Everything Oscar encounters is actually about something else. The midgetness, the adult mind hidden in the child's body, the proprietary attitude towards the toy tin drum on which he bangs out his so-called history, his gift, in air quotes, of being able to shatter glass with his voice, his resemblance to the baby Jesus Christ, sure, why not? The fact that he wills himself to grow a further foot in height after the war during a train ride to the West. In fact, the story is so much involved in the something else 
that the flesh and blood character barely exists. When it comes to describing or explaining or understanding Oscar Matzerat, there is, to quote Gertrude Stein, no there there. Take away half, three quarters, seven eighths, maybe even 99% of the things that happen to him in the book and the story, such as it is, would stay pretty much the same. Nothing hinges on the fact that Oscar bangs his drum or destroys panes of glass or reads only the works of Goethe and Rasputin. He could smack a xylophone, melt plastic, or read H.G. Wells. There would be no difference. So if these things don't mean anything within Oscar's story, they must mean something outside the story, correspond to some larger argument, which is what seals Oscar and all his attributes as symbolic. Yes, that brings us to the same place, the idea that Oscar is a symbol. But if we agree that he's not a symbol of his generation, what is he representing? Is it possible that Oscar is a symbol of the author, Gunter Grass? I'm going to say, I think so. Oscar Mazzarat and Gunter Grass were born about the same time, in the same place. And if Oscar's development was stunted by a war that was foisted on this seeming three-year-old child, then so was Gunter Grass's development stunted, at least morally speaking. After all, in Grass's memoirs, wherein the author revealed that he volunteered for service and was sent to a Waffen-SS unit, Grass describes it as something done to him. When he writes about his introduction to the unit, he does so in third person, describing not himself, but someone who has his name. Much as it was for Oscar, the war was something that took Grass away from himself, a burden that deformed him. This was for me the biggest reversal to the tin drum. This reversal... Oscar representing not an entire generation, but only his creator, Gunter Grass, turns the tin drum from a novel that explores a time and a place into something like a lament for a pitiable character who is in some part the author, an earlier version of Grass's memoirs, very far from what I expected when I started reading this book. Having said that, you can't get pissed because a book doesn't deliver what you expected. Or you can, but that's to do with your expectations, not the book. What you can get pissed about, extremely pissed about, is when a book is bad. Bad and 563 pages long. Pages that are full of block paragraphs, unrelieved by any kind of dialogue, air, lightness, or humor that is not the mirthless chuckle frequently called wordplay, which has come to mean high-end, not-at-all-funny punning. Punning may have repeatedly been called the lowest form of humor, but complex, unfunny punning is an even lower form of humor. Let me say this. When a book is generally terrible, but has the occasional good bit, I've always considered that the worst, because every time you think of putting it down like the limping, incontinent animal that it is, something decent comes along that says to you, just 10, 15 more pages and you will be rewarded. The Tin Drum has defined for me a new category of awful. This category is populated by books that are bad, irredeemably bad, with no good bits whatsoever, zero, but needs to be gotten through because it is a so-called big book, an important book, a part of the canon. I felt, even when it would have been better to drop it in a puddle or down a garbrader that happened to be on at that moment, I felt that I couldn't do that because I had to read this book, and beyond that, I should read this book. Should. The word that destroys lives. There are many reasons the tin drum is a literary error. Part of it is the unbridgeable distance between one's expectations of this book and the reality delivered by its many shitty pages. 
But the main reason why the tin drum is so woefully wrong goes back to what I was struggling with throughout the novel. The problem that, despite seeming to be heavily, even densely populated with material, everything in the book refers to something outside the book, and as a result, there is no there there. In the 50th anniversary edition of the book, which was the one I was reading, there was an introduction by the author where he recalls telling his first English publisher that the tin drum is too rooted in a specific locality to appeal to a broad audience. The publisher apparently answered with the truism that the more local, the more universal. And I'm here to say anyone who has attempted to read James Joyce knows that that's 100% bullshit. While the local can reflect the universal, the relationship cannot be taken for granted. The local must be transcended, and in the case of the tin drum, which as it goes on seems more and more about one author's journey to the limits of his own solipsism, the book keeps getting more specific, esoteric, recondite, etc. It's not that it's too local, it's that it's massively self-absorbed. Again and again, Gunter Grass makes it clear he doesn't really care if you understand what he was trying to say, whether the term Kashubian means something to you, or if you know the rules of scat, which is a card game by the way or the history of the Swedish invasions of the Baltic coast of Europe. I mean, it tells you something when a book comes with its own glossary. But it tells you even more when, after reading the glossary, as I did for the tin drum, I still didn't understand what the fuck was going on. Or maybe I should check that. It's not so much that I didn't understand. I kind of did understand. It's just that it came to the point where I didn't care. What I'm trying to convey is that almost everyone that populates this very long novel, and almost everything that happens in this very long novel, is, like the protagonist, a symbol. What do these symbols mean? Most of the time, you have no clue. And on those infrequent occasions when you do, you don't really care. That's the thing about filling your pages with random nonsense. They become meaningless. Grandmother, mother, lover, father, second wife, greengrocer, art instructor, gravedigger, nurse, every character in the tin drum is so undercooked that beyond their names and occupations, there is nothing to distinguish one from the other. Take the example of Alfred Mazzarat, Oscar's presumptive father. After spending hundreds of pages with him, what do we know? Well, he cooks well, is a committed member of the Nazi party, plays scat, and so? The same goes for Oscar's grandmother, who wears four skirts. 20 pages on her four skirts, and so what? She could have five skirts, 20 skirts, two skirts, trousers, chaps. It wouldn't make her any different as a character or any more interesting. She is impregnated by an arsonist, a fact that is pointed out often and has exactly zero relevance. It's like Gunter Grass's editor told him that every thought that popped into his head needed expression. On second thought, this book probably didn't have an editor. It's more like Gunter Grass grew up in a house where his mother let him play all day and never had him clean up his toys. Reading this book is like walking into a playroom strewn with toys. There was joy here for the wild child who has made this mess, but no joy for you tripping over the objects in the vain hope of putting the room in order. If expressed as an equation, the tin drum would be 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 ad infinitum equals 0. about populating your book with a bunch of signs and turning reading into an exercise in semiotics is that you alienate the reader. 
This is not a matter of Oscar not being a likable character, and he isn't. He's exhaustingly self-important and utterly charmless. But literature is filled with unlikable characters. I mean, V.S. Naipaul. And I'm talking about the characters he writes. Right? The problem here is that Oscar is an uninteresting character. He is an amalgamation of characteristics, a tower of blabber that's missing any kind of heart. He has no appeal. He has, as I said, no charm. The story is told almost completely in his voice, and it's only when, for a couple of pages that one of Oscar's visitors at the asylum takes over the storytelling, that the reader fully grasps how imperious, uninteresting, unpleasant, and how annoying Oscar's voice is. At a certain point, then, due strictly to the will to survive, the human mind recedes from the text in front of it, this novel called The Tin Drum, and proceeds to think about other, significantly better works inspired by The Tin Drum. One that came to mind was Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Sick, deformed protagonist, magical realist family stories, turbulent period in history, a character with special powers of communication who, as it happens, also likes to watch his mother change clothing. And a more obvious and acknowledged connection is between the tin drum and John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. Like Oscar, Owen Meany is a midget of uncertain lineage, with a physically strong voice who is in love with an older woman. Like Oscar, Owen is, if not fully formed as a young person, then certainly ahead of his time. And there is also a Christ-like cast to Owen Meany's character and actions, although one that actually has a bearing on the plot. And Owen is touched by war, although in his case, the war is Vietnam. Obvious differences arise between the source book and their followers. In the case of Midnight's Children, the protagonist tells the reader wondrous stories that are brilliant on their own while adding up to something still greater. In the case of A Prayer for Owen Meany, there is Owen Meany's tragic charisma, his sense of being fated to do something great, his unique nature, a character made of flesh and blood with a beating heart, who still represents something greater than himself. And it's not merely that these two books were better in conception, they were, crucially, better in execution. To choose just one detail to make the point, in Irving's novel, Owen Meany is a predominant character in the story, but he is not the narrator. That job is given to his best friend. The narrator is in the shadows then, amazed at the feet of this great Owen Meany. He brags about Owen, he shines his memory up, he turns his flaws into qualities, makes his megalomania, for instance, into a vocation. Such a little thing, giving the role of narration to a person who's not the hero of the story, it made the book. I cannot imagine the author of The Tin Drum sharing in this way. The experience of reading this novel strongly suggests Gunter Grass is in the habit of showing everyone how much he has, but not sharing any of it. And so goes my first and most likely last encounter with the gas bag of Gdansk. Thank you for listening. You can send me notes, nasty and nice, on Twitter, at burningbookspod, and via email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks go to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. This is Craig Murray, former British ambassador 
dissident and author of Murder in Samarkand. And you're listening to Dejo Litopia. Mm-hmm. 